It's time for another episode of Tucson Means Business, featuring Tucson's top entrepreneurs and leaders in the business world. And now your host, Mark Bishop. And welcome to another Tucson Means Business with Mark Bishop, proudly sponsored by the 49ers Golf and Country Club. And I need to remind you, uh, in reference to that, you can still play golf at the club. Uh, Of course, single carts only and separated, uh, naturally. Uh, They've even got little rubber things in the bottom of the cups where you don't have to touch the flagstick. But, of course, the restaurant is completely shut down. That's not even takeaways to pick up and take away or order. Uh, Everything else is shut down completely uh, because of the pandemic. But uh, they are open for golf and we'd like you to know that. Okay, so welcome to another show. My special guest is John D. Take. And I'm going to say John Take is a P-E and a P-E-N-G and an M-E-N-G. <laughs> He's the Executive Vice President, Water Business Operating Unit Leader. Welcome, John. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking all things water. Yeah, man, it's an important thing for us right now. I wish the monsoons would hurry up, I tell you. But uh, before we go any further, just explain with my ignorance, please. What are the uh, initials after your name? Sure, Mark. Well, um, the PE is the professional engineer. So that's the Arizona Board of Technical Registration. That's how they um, uh, help uh, uh, legis- uh, legislate and regulate the engineering profession in Arizona. Mm-hmm. The P dot eng is the Canadian counterpart. Actually, Arizona and Alberta, where I moved to Tucson from have a, a reciprocity agreement. So um, they allow for the engineering talent to work back and forth uh, between Canada and Arizona quite easily. And then the MEng is my master's degree, which uh, I took in water resources. And uh, I took it at the U of A, but I have to tell you it's the U of A North because it was Alberta, not Arizona. So I have to clarify <laughs> that now. <laughs> More okay. than one U of A. Well, either way, thanks for sharing that. But uh, what you're telling me is, you know, no deal when it comes to this industry. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you today. Now, you serve as Executive Vice President for Stantex, 2,000-strong North American water consultancy team. And this is working in over 120 locations. Now, from what I can ascertain under your direction, Stantec has grown its ability to deliver large and complex water projects addressing climate change and urbanization, as well as the need for sustainable food, water, and energy solutions for a growing world population. That's about it in a nutshell, right? Yep, not a big deal. Well, you earned your bachelor's degree in civil engineering from the University of New Brunswick and your master's in water resources engineering from, as you say, the University of Alberta. Uh, What does a master's in water resources look like, John? So the the curriculum and the focus of uh, of, um, a postgraduate degree in water resources, uh, if I had to sum it up, it would be uh, all about the problems of too much and not enough. Certainly in Arizona, uh, we, we're living in an arid to semi-arid environment, and we're very concerned about the not enough side of water. Um, but on the flip side, many parts of the world deal with the challenges of too much water. Um, I spent seven years uh, recently working in New Orleans, and that's certainly the side of the coin that they're on. So the water resources engineering practice is all about um, you know, dealing with too much water, not enough. How do we move the water from where we have too much to, to where it's uh, um, needed? And how do we do it all efficiently and sustainably and uh, meet the, the, the growing water challenges that the world faces? Mm. Um, you know, water is very tied to economics and food and energy. Yeah. Um, so you can't, you can't consider one uh, without the other. Without the other. We're going to touch a little bit later on. I want to talk to you about the... Uh Colorado River Basin and so on, and our desert environment here. Um, You do serve as a member of Stantec's Disclosure Committee, uh, recently joined the U.S. Water Alliance Board of Directors. Can you share with us what the U.S. Water Alliance represents? Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, The water industry uh, has a lot of specializations and specialties. We have people that focus on drainage and, and rainwater and groundwater and wastewater um, and, you know, obviously uh, potable drinking water. And there's a, there's a, a growing movement within the water industry to recognize that, you know, there isn't good water and there isn't bad water. Um, there's only one water. And so U.S. Water Alliance is uh, a collection of 
agricultural interests and industrial interests, uh, water utilities, wastewater utilities, regulators um, that have all joined together to try and do a better job of recognizing that there's only one water. We're all upstream and downstream from somebody else. Yeah, and right. To really solve to, to really solve the world's water problems, we we cannot uh, just solve the water problems in isolation. We've got to take a bigger look um, and work together as more of a community. Well, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. You're well known, uh, John, in the water industry for your uh, expertise in water conveyance planning and design. Um, You've been involved in more than, what, 100 projects around the world over the last 25 years. Share with us just uh, perhaps one of your proudest achievements, if you would. Certainly. I think uh, the seven years I spent in New Orleans um, uh, really comes to mind. Uh, In the the desert, uh, we have one relationship with water, and I learned a lot by the seven years I spent in New Orleans. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, you know, mm-hmm. working with the the people that experienced Katrina, you know, down to the household level while we were there, um, there's a, a, a charity called the St. Bernard Project. And, you know, out of those seven years, my best day was, um, you know, we happened to be the last work crew, you know, there, you know, there was such a diaspora or exit of people mm-hmm. from New Orleans, Houston, even as far as far west as Arizona. You know, so many people were displaced economically by Katrina. Um, this charity was working to restore people's homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. And, you know, uh, it was a very proud moment. We were the last work crew, so we were doing some of the drywall and the painting. Wow. And we actually got to meet this this 75-year-old gentleman and his family. Uh, he's a longtime New Orleans resident, and he actually got to come back, and we handed over the keys. And he was gone for 10 years. This was in 2015. Mm-hmm. Katrina was in 2005. And just to see, you know, by, you know, working with um, a community like New Orleans, you know, just down at the personal level, how much it meant to his family that he got to come home and live in a New Orleans that doesn't have as much risk. Um, you know, that meant a lot to us. It was a big project. It was a hard project some of the largest pumping stations in the world to drain the bowl in New Orleans. So technically it was very challenging, but you know, you see the smiles and tears in people's eyes when, when their lives change. Oh, it was horrible, wasn't it? I mean, uh, the (laughs) fortunate ones like us, we just saw everything on the news as much as you, as you can, but being there would be another ball game altogether. I think we're talking money in that particular case, something like seven, uh, what was it? $730 million dollars. Uh, are designed uh, to build permanent canal closures and and the pumps project. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Well, and that's that's the challenge uh, that we're facing with with developing more resilient coastal communities. Um, New Orleans, you know, we did the last kind of capstone project there, but they spent fourteen billion dollars for that community after Katrina. Uh, mm. Miami is looking at a $4 billion spend, New York City, Boston, you know, several hundred million just to protect the San Francisco airport. And so unfortunately, we're, we're seeing sea level rise and, and uh, climate change, you know, really posing a challenge that, right. uh, um, you know, I'm not really, you know, people worry about uh, employment becoming a problem going forward. I think as the world deals with climate change, there's going to be an awful lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the 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 New Orleans thing alone, uh, one of the largest drainage pumping systems in the world, uh, capable of moving more than what sixteen billion gallons of water per day. Um, I, I think it was the History Channel that I saw it. It was called uh, Project Impossible, and uh, it was amazing. Let's talk about uh, Stantec, John. There are approximately. 22,000 employees working in over 350 locations across six continents. So what type of uh, personnel does the firm employ? Oh, a great, great variety of professionals. We're one of the largest architects in North America. Um, we're, we're the largest water company in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, uh, healthcare in the Middle East is a huge business for us. A lot of uh, buildings, engineering professionals, transportation we're you know we're upgrading the long island railroad right now um and then obviously a lot of uh, water uh, folks in the business that that i work with mm-hmm. um, environmental services um uh, water power and dams uh energy and resources 
um, and uh, as I mentioned, transportation. So, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, work with public infrastructure and we do a lot of work for private clients as well. Well, this was the company was uh, what founded in 1954. Uh, is it a Tucson original company? No, Arizona is our beachhead in the U.S. So Stantec started in 1954 in Western Canada. There was a gentleman uh, who was a hockey player, but he wasn't that that good of a hockey player. So he went and got his uh, doctorate at Harvard in environmental science. And so he went down uh, to uh, to Harvard and got his degree and went back to Western Canada and started the company. And then, you know, as they grew out of Western Canada, they looked and, and saw the United States as the future. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the all the, in, you know, the original initial growth into the United States happened in Arizona. So um, back into the 90s, uh, we, we entered the Arizona market and then through uh, acquisitions and mergers have grown. You know, when I started, we had 1,200 people 27 years ago, wow. and now we're up at over 22,000. So there's been a lot of uh, uh, acquisitions around the world that, uh, that, that's been our main uh, means of growth. Well, it was good that you chose uh, Arizona. You know, good for us, good for the turnover and good for jobs, good for everything else. Now, the company has stood the test of time. There's no doubt about it. What would you say... Uh, that your strengths and for that matter any weaknesses uh, when it comes to Stantec? I think you know Stantec's never had a year where it lost money and that in no in no small way comes from diversity. Early on uh, Stantec might have been a little overly dependent on some of the Western Canada oil economy and uh, in, in the 80s I think there were some hard lessons and uh, that were learned and some management uh, challenges that we weathered that really influenced the company, and, and that's why we're not just a water company. You know, we were a water company originally, but that's why we also do architecture and transportation. And, you know, indeed, that's why we're a global firm now, is to have that presence of diversity, um, you know, so that you're operating in many different economies, many different areas. Mm. You know, and as the needs of society uh, move from one area to another, uh, we're able to, to work across them. So it's it's a question, it's a case of balance. If you're going to be around for a long time, you've got to be balanced and diverse and, and able to, to move nimbly when the, when the world and the economy moves on you. We're in a unique, you know, geographical environment, Arizona, a desert environment. Uh, water is one of nature's most valuable resources. Probably even going to be worth more than oil one day. Uh, can you explain what is being done to ensure perhaps a safe, sustainable water supply for here, the greater Tucson area? Yeah, I think we're we're uh, in in a good spot. Uh, obviously, we we can never take our eye off the water ball, and so I think uh, you know that one water approach uh, that I mentioned is being um, deployed very successfully here with Pima County uh, Regional Wastewater and Tucson Water and the other water utilities around town. They've got a long-term focus. Um, you know, in the history, in the early days, there was uh, a groundwater resource that was depleted and that's mm. now being replenished. And, um, you know, we do uh, take advantage of the Arizona water right from the Colorado River. And with the drought contingency plans that were signed last year um, and the banked groundwater, you know, Tucson Water puts a lot of water in the ground every year. Uh, we have more water than we need right now. And so the good folks over at Tucson Water are actively banking water for the future um, mm. so that uh, as, as, as the climate varies up and down, you know, we're not necessarily in the drought we were that we saw 10, 15 years ago, but, you know, we're still uh, saving, the, saving that water, maybe not for a rainy day, but for a dry day in our future. Well, that's right. Well, I'll credit uh, an article written here by Mary uh, Minor Davis where, I think flashback 10 years ago, the Southwest was under a record-breaking 11-year severe drought warning. Uh, The Colorado River Basin was at uh, an alarmingly low rate. Uh, I think it was not seen like that in more than a 1,000 years. I don't know who's around then to tell us, but, you know, and Lake Lake Mead's water levels were at their lowest uh, since it was filled back in the 30s. And local cities and towns were implementing strict conservation measures Uh, to reduce the flow of water to landscapes, pools, and, of course, the old golf courses get bashed and more. Uh, But you fast forward to today, and the glass is more than half full, especially in Tucson. How is that, John? You know, that's the the variability of our our climate. Um, You know, 
there's hardly ever an average year when it comes uh, to rainfall and snowfall up in the Colorado River pack. And, uh, you know, we need to be resilient and with our water management rules and processes, um, you know, we want to be able to, to handle, you know, not just the drought, but also the years of plenty. And so I think the the water management schemes that have been set up for the lower Colorado basin um, are, are proving, you know, it's a serious challenge um, that we face on the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, through continued development of additional technologies, um, water conservation, you know, we should be really proud. Um, you know, the amount of water we use per person here in Tucson is the envy of many other water utilities across North America. We do a good job. I always, you know, we can always do a better job, mm-hmm. but, you know, we do a good job of not using too much water and we're making great reuse of, you know, we're not just using water once and throwing it away. Uh, we've got the treatment technologies and the, the plants in place to use water multiple times here in the desert, which is what we need to do um, to, to maintain that position that we have and to have that, uh, you know, 30 to 50 year supply of water looking downstream because we want economic growth. You know, economic growth doesn't happen without water. So we've got to be able to to provide that um, for our local economy here so that we have that continued ability to grow our economy. Well, when you look back, I mean, the color, the Colorado River Basin, uh, it, you're right, it serves seven states' water's needs, water needs. Um, what, back in 1921, motivated by California's uh, big burgeoning growth then, uh, those state leaders got together to develop a plan that would manage water resources to the future. And the Secretary of Commerce at that stage, uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, what, the 1922 signature for the Colorado River Compact, and that outlines the allocation of water for each state. So off it starts, but the agreement established the upper basin to include Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And the lower basin includes Arizona, Nevada, and California. And uh, I think it was in 1944, the U.S.-Mexico Water Treaty added an annual allocation to Mexico. See, so, I mean, it goes everywhere. The Hoover Dam, dedicated in 35, hydroelectric power and store Colorado River water. But what's happening today, upstream, downstream, with all the blues, all the fights that are going on with who gets what and how and where and how it's divided? Where do you see this going? I think the drought contingency plans, um, you know, are, are that we're a first, you know, not a first step, but we're a crucial step um, when they were all initialed and signed last year. That helped put in place some rules about how in a, in a situation where Lake Powell and Lake Mead continue to face storage challenges and they're, you know, they're not full mm-hmm. today, obviously, if you can see the bathtub rings around Lake Powell yeah. and Lake Mead. Mm-hmm. Those, those drought contingency plans give us the, the mechanism to adjudicate, you know, water withdrawals going forward. There's additional projects that will continue to be developed along the Colorado. You know, Utah is looking at the Lake Powell pipeline uh, to address some of their water needs. Um, a lot of the large users are at different stages of water uh, reuse. Um, you know, Tucson's, you know, well down the road of making sure that we reuse all of our treated wastewater. The uh, city of Los Angeles has a goal over the next 15 years to recyc- recycle 100% of its wastewater. We're helping them with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately this ability to um, uh, reduce our reliance on the Colorado River through water reuse. You know, right now here in Tucson, we do a lot of indirect reuse. We take the Colorado River, we store it um, in some uh, aquifers west of the city out in Avra Valley so we can have it when we need it. Um, but at some point, um, I think the industry knows that direct potable reuse, you know, I like to call it showers to flowers, that uh, we're, <laughs> we're making uh, direct potable reuse and, and that'll help us manage, you know, even out into the further into the future, uh, past our existing supplies, um, that direct potable reuse, the industry is getting ready, you know. I actually have a water bottle in my in, in my uh, fridge that's treated wastewater, so I'm saving it for a special day. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can drink potable reuse. They, they uh, do it up on the space station, and sooner or later, uh, cities like Arizona will move in that direction as well. Well, um, when I think about the CAP, as they call it, you know, the uh, Central Arizona Project, uh, it was President Lyndon Johnson back in 1968. He signed the Colorado River Basin Project Act. And, of course, that established this uh, Central Arizona project. 
um, and was responsible really for the construction of what 336 miles system. And that's what brings the Colorado River water to central and southern Arizona. Um, 16 years, I think, it took to, um, when they flooded Glen Canyon, it took approximately 16 years to fill 3,700 foot level in 1980, Lake Mead and Lake Powell. What of the future if we don't get the monsoons that we're used to? And the world, the world weather is changing. There's no doubt about it. And you can't go underground all the time but the basin, right? What's the story? What's the true story with that? People say, oh, there's tons of water. Don't worry about it. You know, But that's not the case, is it? Well, no. I mean, water is of a limited supply no matter where you are. And even in the desert, uh, you know, it's even more of an acute situation. So going forward, the, the water, ultimately the water rights laws will, will come into play. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a great deal of uh, legal framework over who has a uh, right to the water that's in the Colorado River, however much of it there is. And um, going forward, you know, the, you know, the drought contingency plans are in place now as a framework. But, you know, for example, if Arizona ultimately doesn't have the ability to, to use Colorado River water, that's why we need to have some of these other systems in place. This one water approach, um, uh, direct potable reuse, water conservation measures, and, uh, you know, uh, capturing more uh, rainwater and stormwater. Uh, changing our urban design standards that we've mm. already started to do. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, there's going to be a, a great deal of ingenuity that needs to come into play, and uh, we'll need to adapt to it to a changing source of water. I think we can manage the quality, um, and so the you know in terms of the quantity, it may just be coming from some different sources. You right. know, less Colorado River water and more reuse and more more use of rainwater and stormwater. Well, it helps me to reflect, actually, when uh, when I think back in Australia, I forget the year that it came in, but the Queensland government at that time put uh, a bit of a curfew on new building homes and, and new, you know, builders, developers. They had to supply water tanks with new homes on the side of the home. These aren't all big round things. These are nice, uh, you know, square, rectangle-type water tanks that uh, are put around the side of the house where you don't really notice it. But by gee, they took a lot of water when we got it. See, Queensland is a lot like monsoonal rain in certain periods of the year. So that water goes to waste, a lot of it. So when you start putting all this water, rainwater, into tanks, now you can water gardens and wash cars, and it's good enough to drink out of anyway. But, I mean, that adds to the situation. I cry here when I see beautiful monsoon water just going down the gutters. You know, there could be something similar there perhaps one day. No, and I think Tucson's taking some exciting steps in that direction. Um, you know, you can have, obviously, you know, you have the plumbing in, in a typical house in North America is just providing uh, potable water and taking away wastewater. Mm -hmm. You can add additional piping in the houses so that you have a gray water system. And literally, you can capture, you know, the water that's draining out the bottom of your showers, uh, water that's coming out of your dishwasher and, and, and so forth, and reuse that water. Um, you know, we use about, say, 80 gallons a person per day, roughly, here in Tucson as a rough number. You know, the city of Cape Town in South Africa, they got into a very dire water situation. They were down to about 13 gallons a day. Wow. And they were, um, you know... That's a 90-second shower a day, maybe a half gallon to drink, a sink full, you know, a sink full for your laundry yeah. and, and a couple of hand washings and a toilet flush. I mean, that's... That's about it. You know, as, as, <laughs> as low as you can go is, you know, six or seven times less than what we use here in Tucson. So, uh, yeah. you know, we don't want to get, obviously, we don't want to get to that situation, but there's a lot we can do with conservation. Right. I mean, I was watching the poor devils last night in the camps, you know, uh, in, uh, the... Uh, people out of war-torn countries, and they're lucky to get a plastic bucket full of water just for the day, and that's for the whole family. Uh, never mind uh, the kids and showering, but tell you what. Uh, when we come back, I'm speaking with uh, John Take, who is the Executive Vice President, Water Business Operating Unit Leader with Stantec, and it's Tucson Means Business, proudly brought to us by the 49ers Golf and Country Club. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Tucson Means Business on Tucson Business Radio X right here, coming out of the Stuart Title Building on Broadway. And, of course, we're proudly sponsored by the 49ers Golf and Country Club, a wonderful course and wonderful club here in Tucson. I have the Director of Memberships and Tournaments, Casey Polivjack. Casey, tournaments are a big thing for a golf club. Uh, absolutely. Um, we are a semi-private club, which means we have membership available but we also are open to the public um with being open to the public we welcome um, non-profit uh, tournaments uh fundraisers um, we specialize in groups from four to 144. see this is an important thing isn't it in the community uh, companies would love to do something for their staff something that's different but they don't want the course to be too hard and they want it to be friendly they want the service to be right and the atmosphere to make it a really fun day. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what you strive to do, isn't it? It's part of your uh, whole job, really. I think that's what we uh, we specialize in is the, how am I going to say this? The, the, the tournament that's not looking at spending too much money because they're in it to make money for their for their charity right so we offer really good uh, facilities uh, a great golf course um but i'm going to be honest it's not the best golf course in tucson it's not the nicest facilities but everything is good out there and your guests are going to have a good experience because of the value that they're getting for uh, the cost of the tournament. There you go. That's an important factor. It's all very well, you know, wanting to have a great day out for everybody, but if it breaks the bank, then it defeats the whole purpose. Absolutely. And if you're trying to raise funds, which is an integral part, because Tucson seems to be a wonderful place for raising funds, there's so many people who support so many wonderful causes. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, great causes out there. And, you know, people get, they kind of come to a, a fork in the road. And, um, you know, you got school sponsorships that, uh, you know, booster clubs. Um, there's so many uh, fundraising uh, facility or uh, possibilities out there that uh, we really have specialized in golf tournaments for people and helping them maximize the amount of money they can make. Mm -hmm. um, I've put together a, a brochure to help people that have never uh, run a golf tournament that will kind of take them from step one until the, you know, the day of the event. That's so. very, very good. If people uh, from somewhere now, maybe they're moving into Tucson with a new business, new company, whatever, how can they get hold of you directly? Uh, you know, they can call me directly at 520-749-4925, uh, extensions 212, but we recommend you go to the, the website. Uh, it's a great way to, uh, you know, get information about the club on uh, not only golf tournaments, but membership. That website is... 49ercc.com F-O-R-T-Y-N-I-N-E-R-C-C.com There you go. Casey Bolivchak. He's the Director of Memberships and Tournaments. He's the fellow to speak to. Now back to the show. Back with Tucson Means Business and let me ask you this, John. How has the water industry been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, this has been an interesting time. It's certainly not the year that any of us in the water business or, or any other business were expecting. Uh, you know, we had a serious initial disruption um, with our operations, um, uh, moving people uh, off-site um, and, and learning how to do construction and design in, in new means and, and field work. Um, you know, a lot of the, war the work with water utilities are, you know, they were deemed essential services. Mm. And so, you know, there was that big initial disruption. You know, we were doing some project work with Tucson Water and we all had to learn um, all the ins and outs of video calls and how do we do work remotely. Uh, but I think the, the big disruption is yet to come. Um, there's the, the drinking water and wastewater utilities in North America, um, you know, just drinking water alone, um, you know, for example, Tucson Water has suspended water turnoffs and their late fees, and a lot of utilities are doing that to help people out. But that's a big revenue impact, and that revenue impact um, and the fact that you know non-residential water uses, you can imagine the U of A and, and a lot of the businesses as they've shut down, they're not using water. Mm -hmm. So there's a big a big hit to the water and wastewater industry. I've I've seen an estimate that the water industry, the utilities, might take a 14 billion dollar revenue hit, and 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 that's a concern because obviously they want to maintain services to people. Water, especially in the time of a pandemic, is very important for hand washing and sanitation. Mm -hmm. Um, so ultimately, I think the water industry, 
is going to see a lot of capital budget and capital planning change. And then that has a ripple effect through the economy uh, because that construction and design uh, employs a lot of people. So it's, you know, still sort of early days in assessing the, the impact um, to the, the water-based economy in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Cities like New, New York City, um, they may, they've talked about reducing the amount of construction they're doing by 50%. Uh, wow! So due to water, it's well. That's across the. That's across the all of their, you know, transportation and subway construction. Right. Um, uh, but but they've seen a seven point four billion dollar revenue loss, and that money's now not going to be available for capital planning. So, you know, there's the obvious human and health side of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but on the business side. I think 2021 is going to be a difficult year economically as we work our way through these problems that are coming because of all of the impacts of the pandemic. Let me ask you a a dumb question (laughs) from from a layman's point of view. You just talked about how, how much money is lost in reference to projects, you know, stopped in New York and so on. A lot of it, you know, to do with being able to utilize water and so on. And we can't waste water. People need to drink it and do it for other things. And people could say, well, look, you know, to heck with the production and so on. Uh, let's put the priorities with water first. And then we've got everybody jumping up and down with, uh, and, and whether you like it or not, it seems to be there that definitely there is climate change. Now, having said all this, why is it so expensive and could not the money be relocated to use more salinization? If we're going to get flooded anyway by ocean, why can't we take some of this water, keep the ocean down so we don't get flooded out, and use that water? I mean, is it that no, silly? And in many, no, and in many, many countries, uh, that's exactly what they're doing. California, <clears throat> out of out of everyone in North America, California's dipped their toe in the desalinization um, uh, potential uh, ahead of anyone else in North America, but there are many countries that they cannot meet their water supply without desalination. The the issue is is one of economics. In I hear it's extremely re- expensive. This is the biggest problem with it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah it takes a lot of electrical power to force the water through the membranes that that uh, remove the salt, and so. Uh, you know, there's a problem. You have a, a concentrated byproduct stream from desalination. Uh, all the salt products and the mineral mineral content, it's a nasty environmental problem, but you can deal with that. But at the end of the day, you know, if 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 push comes to shove, desalination could be deployed and, and would provide a lot of water. It just, you know, that's no one's first choice when it comes to having a low-cost uh, supply of water. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, one, one imagines pipes all over the place coming out of the sea. Um, I mean, we, we, live in a, we live in a place where you turn the tap on and you just take it for granted. Uh, I was always brought up, turn taps off, no leaks. You know, uh, wash the car with a bucket of uh, extra garden water if you could or something or other. But we just, uh, people in showers, let it run for hours, you know, it just amazes me. Well, what would happen one day when, when it's not there? Look at the poor devils in Flint. They're still lined up for miles being able to get water, three dozen bottles of small water, and that's so they can cook in it as well and have a wash. I mean, that's pretty no, scary. That's, a, that's exactly right. And I think unfortunate situations like Flint, I mean, that whole situation precipitated because Flint, Michigan, tried to find a lower cost of water. They had a deal uh, and a contract for water supply, and they believed they could create a lower-cost water supply closer to home and um, did not succeed with that new supply. And the water chemistry changed in the pipes and exposed the community to the lead and other issues that happened. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that the, the, the economics of water drives a lot of decision-making, and Flint just shows how, shows how careful you have to be. Talk about Tucson and money and the decision-makers – you know, uh, it's not easy running any county or anything else. But there's a lot of unhappy people with not from council is one thing and uh, supervisors is another, this and that. You deal with these dudes. Are they with it? Are they on top of it? Are they aware of what our future is going to be? Are they planning for it, do you think? 
I do. I think um, because we deal with a lot of municipalities, uh, not just in Arizona, but across the U.S. and Canada, I think Tucson's done a, a, a very good job um, with its treated wastewater effluent reuse, uh, with, with its um, uh, move towards green infrastructure and capturing more of the rainwater that falls on the city. And then just, you know, probably most importantly, the long-term water resource planning that Tucson Water has done, looking downrange um, to make sure that we're not developing the city beyond what uh, a sustainable water uh, source can provide and sustain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, none of us like paying our utility bills, but, um, you know, the, qual- the quality and the quantity and the, and the long-range resource that's been created for the community. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, as, as a profession, we always know we can do better and we strive to do better and, and learn the lessons that we see happening around North America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, have, having worked with a lot of different utilities, uh, you know, I'm proud that uh, um, to live here in Tucson and to be part of a community that uh, is not only taking care of, you know, the people, but is also recharging water to the environment and releasing water back into the Santa Cruz, like Tucson Water started uh, here earlier this year. Mm-hmm. You know, they're focused on the environment as well as uh, the, the people in the economy. And that water that goes back into that, is that reused water? Yep. So there's there's releases from the local uh, treatment plants here. Um, uh, so treated wastewater is released. And then, you know, as part of the whole one water cycle, there's Colorado River water and groundwater that ultimately portions of it end up getting released back to the environment. Hmm. So, you know, you hear a lot about how it's difficult to find land in Tucson or for us to grow uh, with all the things we still need, you know, great roads and this and that. But there is a bit of development going on. But I guess, you know, the whole water uh, debate has to come into it to be able to supply and to service. Uh, I mean, water is getting expensive here, you know. Yeah, and that's, you know, points to the importance of water conservation. You know, the simple replacement over time of less efficient uh, water fixtures, whether it's a shower or a toilet, um, you know, the water demand per person is actually... Um, say, staying stable in Tucson. So you mentioned the growth that's happening that's so important. You know, as that growth is happening, our overall, you know, per capita demand is staying the same or slightly decreasing. Mm. And so if, if, if we weren't taking those conservation measures, then the, you know, the math would tilt to an unfavorable spot. But, you know, by pushing conservation and really being cognizant, like you said, you know, seeing a running tap as a series of pennies falling out of your faucet. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start to think about it like that, mm. um, and and we and we do conserve more and start to take more and more advantage of of the the, the limited rainfall we do get. Uh, I think we can match and have the the high quality water and um, you know keep it affordable, and also you know permit that growth that that we need for the for the greater good of the community. So what I'm hearing you saying is that uh, as a desert city, Tucson faces unique water challenges, and we're we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Nothing to worry about. I think about. so. There's a. I think so. Well, there's. <laughs> it's it's weather and climate. So tomorrow's always a new day, and so we'll you know we'll have to stay vigilant. But you know you look across. You know, for example, you look across I-10, and I look at the different communities and the challenges. You know, from LA all the way through to to Florida. Um, uh, I know we don't like to talk about ASU much here down in Tucson, but there's a, there's an interesting initiative that has a water flavor, <laughs> exactly. Um, but they they they've started up an initiative called 10X, and and it's looking at um, you know the communities strung out along I-10 from mm-hmm. from west to east, and it's interesting you know all of the the common shared challenges, whether it's the challenges with with uh, too much water in New Orleans or not enough water here in LA and in Phoenix and in Tucson. Um, you know, we, we share a lot of common uh, challenges along I-10 and, and there's some good conversations. And so, you know, that helps Tucson identify, you know, what's Los Angeles doing, what's Phoenix doing, um, you know, what are, what are, what are, what's a community like Houston doing to capture its rainwater. And, and so there's some really good dialogues more than, you know, in, in the past that I'm seeing emerge that, you know, you know, Tucson gets to share its great stories and then also learn um, from the experiences of others. So mm-hmm. that gives me a lot of hope for the future, Mark. Yeah. 
Well, I, I'd never experienced this before, but I have a very good friend who lives up in Scottsdale. I won't say exactly where this particular location was, but a, a beautiful home, a stunning home, right? Absolutely right. lovely. Beautiful swimming pool. Everything is amazing. I go to go to the toilet one day and I couldn't go. Guess why? No water. And the water, wow. the water is a tank where a truck has to go in between X amount of houses to load up the tank again before you get your bit of water that you pay for. Now, talk about, you know, third world. Have I ever seen anything like it in my life? Why, you know, the connection there would be very nice indeed, but I guess that costs a lot of money to do those uh, sorts of programs, right, into new developments. Yeah, you're getting out on the edge of water sustainability if, if it's arriving at your home in a truck. Yeah, right. Let's talk about um, this rotten, lousy, miserable COVID-19. How uh, has your business operations here in Tucson, uh, how have you been impacted? Yeah, so I, I remember back uh, in, in, you know, kind of early to mid-March, we made the decision to close down uh, fairly early, um, and we've, we've remained closed. So, you know, our work is essential. We've found, you know, we, we don't often as a workforce have good things to say about IT professionals, but my goodness, you know, the I, IT, I think a lot of businesses would uh, be very appreciative of all their IT staff right now. Yeah. And, you know, Done a lot our of ability work, to, get, yeah. to, to get our workforce uh, working from home, you know, we've all learned to, to become very proficient on video calls and so forth. And so, you know, we've kept our office closed. We think, you know, we don't have to have our people congregating together right. in order to get our get our work done. So if we don't have to do that, we'd rather not take the chance and let the people that have to be out there working out and about, um, you know, mm. save those, uh, save, you know, in case there is a healthcare demand, it doesn't need to come from us if we don't have to be working. So, you know, we took out of our 22,000 staff, uh, over 20,000 of them are now, they've been working at home for six months. And so that's been an interesting social experiment. You know, we, we uh, it's hard to maintain a workforce uh, remotely. So we do a lot of extra meetings and happy yeah. hours and board game nights and just trying to connect our staff. It's It's been a strange year. Yeah, it is. And it's not easy. My studio is normally, uh, it's located in uh, the Stuart Title uh, and Trust Building on Broadway. And that's the corporate offices there. And of course, closed down, you know, due to the pandemic and so on. So I work from home now at the moment. And I miss the gang. I miss everybody. And, and you know, I miss being able to socialize. This work from home jazz is all very well, but it's also very lonely. It can be very lonely. And I was talking to people the other day. I offer the choice to do, you know, Zoom Live, or a lot of people don't want to do it, but they're also sick of it. Uh, they, they miss the press the flesh, you know. They want to get back to that. But what would happen if we had to live like this for a couple of years? I don't know if we could handle it, to be honest. You know, it's, it's certainly taught us a few things, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, uh, the IT guys have set up companies and, and offices. It's, they've done a marvelous job. But there's a lot of places, too, that weren't ready. And, uh, you know, they're finding it now. I mean, Zoom, I think, what are they, another 500 engineers or something they've, uh, they're putting into Tempe just to be able to handle the workload now, you know. Um, oh, that's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Now, um what sort of projects, again, does your water team here in Tucson mainly work on? So uh, typically um, here in Tucson, um, uh, you know, with the 30, 40 people we have here, we're doing a lot of conveyance work. So, you know, the University of Arizona has an expanding campus. So we've been working on some projects with Pima County Wastewater to, to reroute and create some new capacity in the, in the sewer collection system mm -hmm. for the University of Arizona. We've been working with Tucson Water on their water recharge facilities out in Avra Valley. Um, and so we do a lot of conveyance work, so pipelines and pump stations. Up in Phoenix, we do a lot of work uh, on treatment plants. So, you know, working with uh, new, new facilities in Buckeye and Gilbert. Um, but again, you know, with our staff all off working remotely, um, they, you know, get a chance to work on projects all over North America. So we've got staff that are, you know, even working on some irrigation projects in New Zealand here from Tucson. So I guess that's the one upside is, you know, we've learned how to work together uh, a little bit more efficiently remotely and we're able to, mm -hmm. to, you know, take advantage of the world economy as well as the Arizona economy. 
Yeah, well, there's plenty of water in New Zealand once that snow melts, of course. Uh, beautiful country. I've lived there and worked there, and uh, a lot of Americans love New Zealand. It's uh, a very pretty place, just over the pond from the Great Oz. So, in your mind, getting close to our close, what are the largest challenges do you think the world faces in terms of water going forward? Yeah, I almost wish I was starting my career over. I, I, I think about where the world is and, and the challenges that I've worked on you know, in the last 25-plus uh, years. And you know, I think if I were a young engineer um, looking forward, you know, I think urbanization is probably one of the top three. You know, 800,000 new urban residents get added to cities around the globe. That's every week, Mark. Mm. And so, you know, we, we've gone in 1950. There were nine cities over 5 million in population. Well, now we've got 66. And, I, you know, that increased urbanization and is, is going to draw more of the world's population to areas of high water stress. Mm-hmm. You know, two and a half, two and a half billion new city dwellers by 2050, yeah. and so that you know I would say is one of the the global megatrends. You know, the the move from you know particularly in Africa and parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have a lot of new, very large cities, and in many cases, the water supply source just isn't there. No, that's right. You know, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, an example of that. Just uh, sharing with you. Uh, most of the population of Australia, as an example, is on the east coast and around the fringes, right? So mm-hmm. much land, bigger land mass than America, so much land is uh, not lived on, um, not utilised, and yet, you know, if people are just get out of the cities and open up more and more regional centres and, and more nice country towns and so on, and, and if there was a way of being able to do that, I think it would help communities all over the world, to be honest. And in fact, John, I've got to tell you, I've seen a map of America, uh, supposedly in the future, and not that much future either. I'm talking 20, 30 years, where a lot of, a lot of the states are underwater. And that's pretty scary. You know what I mean? The water level rising and all of that jazz. So now you're talking real no, estate. No. And now you're talking people wanting to get out of places. And then we're able to move to somewhere, you know? Yeah, so I think, obviously, climate change. So, you know, urbanization is a challenge. You mentioned climate change. Um, You know, New Orleans, New York, uh, we're doing a project now on the coast of Texas. I'd I'd never heard of Orange, Texas, but it turns out that 40% of America's petrochemical large facilities are there. And, you know, I was working in New Orleans, and we were protecting people from Mm. hurricane storm surge. This project uh, in Texas is one of the larger projects we've ever done, and it's just protecting petrochemical facilities. So, so climate change is a huge challenge. And then, you know, the big one is food production. So we've got increased water scarcity. So we're going to lose, you know, the ability to, to grow grain in the world because of not having enough water. That's a 30% cut to our future ability to produce grain. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the population is growing, we need 70 to 100% more food for a growing population. And so it's awfully hard to have grain and, and uh, livestock without water. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the food production um, and then, you know, people also need energy. So there's some big challenges ahead. That's it. That's um, it. You've got to feed the world, you know, the numbers. I mean, there are those that say, well, that's why we get these pandemics. You know, the good Lord wants to level a few things out and, you know, uh, that's their opinion, of course. But what about growing uh, more internal in factories? And I like the idea of gardens in cities, but maybe on rooftops as well. Do you think, you know, like farmer's markets, but they're on rooftops? Do you think oh, we could... and I think we have to. I, yeah, no, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark. I think we have to not only encourage and create um, the regulatory space for urban um, agriculture, I actually think one of the big industries that need to, that's going to need to grow is urban aquaculture actually starting you know and this is we're seeing more and more we're helping mm-hmm. uh get developed over in new england up in the pacific northwest um mm-hmm. there's there's a growing i actually have one of our phds up in phoenix is making plans in his house in uh, uh out, out in the, his backyard in in southeast phoenix he's going to install his own tilapia pond because he wants to to help solve that problem. He thinks he can grow uh, enough tilapia to almost support four or five families. Wow. And so, 
that the aquaculture is an interesting, intriguing possibility mm-hmm. to start to address, you know, with a low energy use and a low input to actually produce a lot of protein. And mm-hmm. so I think that'll be, you know, we, we more and more of our, uh, fish may become, you know, our fish diet might well, become more sustainable. Uh, that's certainly won't hurt us, that's for sure. And quite frankly, the way the world's going with the oceans, we've got to do something. Uh, that's big in Australia, the aquaculture. That was done many years ago. And uh, it's a great thing. I mean, I've had fish out of it. And I tell you what, uh, you'd never know the difference. In fact, even fresher and sweeter to a degree. But uh, it's just the setting up and getting it, the measurements correct and all the, um, you know, the chemicals right and, and what you've got to do. But, uh, I mean, look at the sea, man. It's the, the rubbish that's in it. Uh, the poor things that are getting uh, strangled by all sorts of uh, rubbish in the sea now. And the fish are depleting uh, desperately. And we've got to do something there as well. So, I don't know. You've got challenges, all right. And thank God there's guys like you running around with uh, working with others to, to, uh, to figure it all out. Um, John, where can people uh, read about you at Stantec? What, do you have a website? Of course you would. Stantec.com, right? That's correct. That's it. Yep. Done. And we're yep. and we're present on social media, so at Stantec on Twitter and on Facebook as well. So, um, you know, you're, you know, Google's our friend. We're we're easy to find when you tap Stantec into uh, into Google. And if anybody wants to have a chat with you, are they interesting along these lines? Uh, maybe career wise too, they can also contact you. You're a friendly sort of fellow. You don't you don't mind, do you? That'd be a nice. No, thing I'd be do. happy to. Ha- Happy to talk to folks, for That's sure. That's great. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. John Take, as in uh, Takeaway, T-A-K-E-P-E-P-N-G-M-E-N-G, Chief Cook and Bottle Washer. <laughs> He's the Executive <laughs> exactly. Vice President of Water Business Operating Unit Leader for a big company, uh, initially out of Canada, but here in a big way in Arizona, right here in Tucson, Stantec.com. Look him up be interesting. John, thank you so much. Fascinating. I learned a lot. And uh, I wish you well with the company and what you're doing for us. Keep up the good work, won't you? Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. I enjoyed the conversation. You're most welcome. Thank you, John. And that wraps it up for another Tucson Means Business. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors uh, who have sponsored me over three years now, uh, both uh, on KBOI Radio, 10.30 a.m., and now here on my own channel with uh, Tucson Means Business and uh, also the Mark Bishop Show. But uh, I'm talking about the 49ers Golf and Country Club that have been hit very hard uh, by the pandemic, as with a lot of businesses. And uh, you can support them by playing a bit of golf if you want. Uh, you know, there's rules and regulations to do, but you're out in the sunshine a little bit. There's just no restaurant open at the moment, which is hurting badly. And, of course, there's a lot of other facilities at the club, but they're all closed down as well, the gym and so on. And they're, uh, you know, abiding by all the rules. But uh, it would help support if you've never played golf. You'd like to have a bash. What the heck? You know, get out there. Uh, single carts if they're not family and connected. But even then, using single carts as well um, if you want to. But uh, check it out. The 49ers Golf and Country Club, all right, they're on uh, Tankerberry Road, um, and it's past the Emily Gray School on the right-hand side towards Reddington. You can't go wrong. Very friendly club. All righty, got to go. Thanks a lot for your company, and I look forward to sharing with you again when we meet very interesting people and our business leaders for another Tucson Means Business. 